Um, pray with me for just a moment. Father, we ask now that as we come to this moment, uh, as we come around your word, I pray that you'll be with us. Father, I pray that you'll be with us all as hearers of the word. And that you will impress upon us the importance of doing your word. And Father, I pray that we will all submit ourselves to your will and to your vision for our lives. And Father, be with me. I pray that you would give me wisdom and give me uh, clarity. And I pray that what I have to preach today will most of all be the gospel. And it will be good for all of us. So that this congregation may be blessed and in turn be a light to the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> so on June 26, the Supreme Court handed down its 5-4 decision in the case of Obergefell versus Hodges, and that decision made same-sex marriage in the United States legal. A decision evoked strong and immediate reaction from the American public. Uh, there were corporations, government institutions, and churches that expressed their reactions to the decision on social media. Some were favorable, some were not. Individuals did the same thing, and many people decided to just stay away from all social media for the weekend. I didn't say anything publicly, certainly not online, because I needed time to think. I also needed time to talk to some of you and to other people that I, that I know and respect. And now I feel prepared to say a few things about this decision, which is now history, and the topic that has been so vigorously discussed. Now, I, wanted, I want you to know this going into this. There's no way I will be able to address everything that needs to be said today. And there's, that's just not possible. But there's a few things that seem appropriate right now. And so I've centered this around four key words. And it may be, you know, I've, I've asked myself, why did I put biblical at the bottom of the list? Shouldn't we start there? Well, we do start there, but for this discussion to talk, we need to get through the other three so that we can get to the discussion of the biblical, and I, I hope that makes sense. To say that the, the beginning of it is personal, um, I urge us to always keep in mind that the issues being discussed about same-sex marriage and uh, sexual orientation, homosexuality, other related matters. For some of us, it's a legal discussion. It's, a, it's an academic or a political or biblical discussion. But for many people that we know and love, for people who are part of this church family, this is a real and personal issue. They live with it. They know people who live with it. So our first response should be pastoral. There is an emotional component to this. For example... Some are quite concerned. They're concerned that a, a loved one is fated for damnation because of their orientation. Some are afraid that they'll be judged as failures because they have a child or family member who's embraced an alternate lifestyle. Some are struggling with their own sexual behavior. Some are struggling because they have friends or children who are too young or irresponsible to understand that there's a difference between sexual immaturity and sexual orientation. There's no way to catalog all of the scenarios that are possible here. But I think that we, we would do well to first pause and know this. It is real and it is nearby, even for us. And in most every case, I can't say this absolutely, but in most every case, 
There is some degree of confusion, distress, anxiety. There's anxieties in the families. So our first word ought to be pastoral. It ought to be, that means it ought to be humble. It ought to be respectful and compassionate, but it should be truth. And it needs to be in support of families who are carrying burdens right now. And by the way, this is where love truly becomes visible. Not in the aftermath of a political decision, but in the way that we demonstrate love to one another. Love and holiness are both the way of Christ. June 26, 2015 is not the date that love won. Love won 2,000 years ago when Christ sacrificed himself so that there might be reconciliation with the Creator. And then there might be reconciliation with one another. And that kind of love, that love, continues to win when we show that we're not naive to the difficulties, to the struggles, and that we can overcome our fear, we can overcome our pride, we can overcome our disappointment, and we can strive for better loving relationships than anything experienced in this world. I want to say this to anyone who identifies themselves, because I know some people will be listening to this on a recording perhaps. But it may apply here as well. To anyone who ever identifies himself, herself as gay, lesbian, homosexual, or any of the other growing list of labels that are out there. And I say this to those of you with friends and family who may identify in this way. I don't want you to think that you're going to be excluded from friendship or excluded from the kindness of a congregational family because of a label. You are loved. You need to know that you're loved. God loves you, and so do we. We love you because Christ taught us to love our neighbors. That is the way of Christ. We also talk to one another about our attitudes and about our behaviors. Lord willing, that's what we'll do this morning. We talk to one another about holiness. And we all need to do more of that with one another. We need to do it in love, whether we have labels or not. Holiness and redemption is also the way of Christ. And I'll say more on this in a moment. But first, there is this political discussion. This matter has been for years and it continues to be political. And well before Thomas Jefferson spoke of a wall of separation between the church and the state, Jesus Christ instructed us, you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and you give to God what belongs to God. But Jesus goes much further than Jefferson because Jesus recognized where true authority was. He said, my kingdom, and he did say he had a kingdom, but he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, here's what that tells me. And I want to ask us this. How long... How long are we going to remain so concerned about the politics of the United States that it keeps us distracted from the authority of Jesus Christ? I'm not saying that your concern is not legitimate. I'm not saying that your concern is not uh, something that needs to be recognized and discussed. But do we also realize ultimately that the authority of Jesus Christ rules over all? When the Supreme Court made its decision on June 26, the authority of Christ was not overruled. When they made their decision, the mission of God, the mission of the church, and God's vision for human thriving, none of that was overruled or annulled or had to be amended. It's always been as it always was. So let's not act as if the decision of earthly lawmakers and judges are ever going to threaten the lordship of Jesus Christ and the mission of his people. I've been asked more than once, and it's a fair question, um, will you 
perform a same-sex wedding or will Westark perform a same-sex wedding? And of course, first I wonder, is that a request or is that, uh, you know, uh, is that a concern? It doesn't really matter because either way the answer is no. And I appreciate the concern that some have expressed that the government will punish you. They may punish you if you don't perform a same-sex wedding. Please don't worry about that. If I can tell, if I can alleviate some of your worry today, please do not worry about that. There are far more serious things for you to worry about. I've been refusing to do weddings for 20 years, and I don't see anything changing that, okay? And I'm not concerned. I mean, I'm, I've, I've refused to do all sorts of weddings, okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? It, it's, it's not going to happen, and I'm not worried about it in the least, and neither should you be. And here's the thing. It's the danger of politics. Let's stay on mission. Our ancient enemy will keep us distracted from the mission of our king by tempting us to think that we somehow have the ability within ourselves to write all the laws that need to be written, to make all of the ordinances and policies so that we will protect and preserve God's will always within some document or within some law. Jesus warned us not to equate the politics of this world with the kingdom of heaven. He said it to Peter when he said, Peter had great intentions, but he said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Those who live by the Supreme Court ruling will die by the Supreme Court ruling. Those who live by the constitutional amendment will die by the constitutional amendment. I urge Westark, and I'm I'm speaking to us as a congregation, I, I, I I have no official capacity to say this other than I love you. It's my task to preach what I think is best and healthy for this congregation. I urge us as a congregation to stay out of the political fray and to stay on our heavenly mission. It's not our mission as a congregation to change the course of this nation through politics and legal action. It is our course to represent our God who will change the course of all nations by His power and in His time and through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we must live in this nation. We have to be understanding of its rules, but we live in this nation according to God's standards. And when the government or culture around us take actions that we believe are contrary to God's kingdom, that's not a time for us to become anxious. God's people have been living in hostile environments for thousands of years. They do today, even in other parts of the world. Our calling is to be a faithful witness. We don't have to yield to those things either, but we don't have to be rebellious and troublemaking. We just have to be faithful witnesses. And by the way, when we get back to preaching Revelation, we're going to see more and more of what that looks like. I think I'm going to even bring some of that up tonight, if you'll join me at 6 p.m. This next dimension, the social. Speaking of living as faithful witnesses and bringing glory to Christ... The way we behave, even when we disagree, must always demonstrate wisdom, and it must always demonstrate Christ-like maturity. Christians and congregations are divided on this issue in the public square. Um, I appreciate those of you who say that that, that you missed me and asked about my vacation. My vacation was something of a working vacation. We were at David Lipscomb's summer celebration event and I uh, had some great teaching there, and we were driving around Nashville. As I was driving through Nashville, I saw two churches within a few miles of each other. Before you get too anxious, these aren't churches of Christ. I don't know, I don't, I don't know what, 
flavor they were. But anyway, these, these two churches, they, they had these billboards, these marquees like most churches do. And I thank God right now that we don't have one. And they, and they had them out there. And one said, God defines marriage, not the Supreme Court of the United States. Within a mile or two, not very far, the other one said, we celebrate marriage equality. Now, giving the benefit of doubt to both of these groups that I know nothing about, they're very likely decent people who contribute to the betterment of society. They each express an allegiance to Jesus Christ. They strive to live by godly principles. On this issue of the ruling about same-sex marriage, they've arrived at contradictory conclusions. How did that happen? Well, I suppose it may be because they interpret God's word differently, or maybe they understand justice or salvation in different ways. Perhaps they're truly reflecting their own political and cultural worldviews. Perhaps it comes down to one church is wrong and one church is right, or they might both be wrong. I don't know these groups, but I do know this, that open division in the public square is regrettable. Now, we shouldn't be concerned about having difficult discussions on difficult topics. Um, having disagreements. Having disagreements and differences, that's not a sign of weakness. It's the way we grow. But the how and the where is just as important as what we're discussing. Healthy families have arguments. Unhealthy families have arguments out in the street, okay? That's how you know the difference. Now, I'm thankful, like I said, that we don't have one of those billboards on the corner of Grand and Waldron. But these days, each and every one of you nearly has your own personal billboard on the corner of Facebook Way and Twitter Turnpike. And, it's, and here's the thing I want you to know. It is your personal page, but it's out there in the public. I urge you like I would urge you at any time, but maybe now it needs to be said. I always want you to consider the wisdom of what you post and what you publish on any subject. Talk to others before you do, or just don't. And if others do not have wisdom, that does not become your excuse to say, oh, well, look what they're doing, now I'm going to do that. Don't, don't, don't enter the fray because others have shown their lack of wisdom. You're just taking the argument out into the street. And it's not constructive. Um, by, the, by the way, something that is interesting that I think illustrates this. Um, this last Friday, we had a gathering, and one of our missionary families who do what they do, they, they, they preach, they teach, they do their work in a country that is officially hostile to faith, where there is no freedom of speech. But every day, they have Bible studies in quiet, in silence. They keep it out of the public arena. They have to. But by also, also by doing that, the officials, the people who are in charge, they turn a blind eye because it's not disruptive. And yet, that quietness, that hiddenness that's going on, there are more people learning the Word of God because of that unseen study that's going on. Far more than if they were to just walk out into the street with a bullhorn and announce it to everyone. We need to keep that in mind that God can work in the unseen places and he can create more victories than any and all of us in our attempts to take a stand to speak out or to write new laws. After the Supreme Court decision, people tallied up who won and who lost. I'm going to disregard all that. But I will tell you this. 
we will lose. We will lose and we will give our enemy, we will give Satan a clear route to his day if our reactions and our conversations contribute to division rather than unity in Christ. Satan wants us at each other's throats. He wants us tearing one another apart. And Scripture has much to say about our attitudes. It has as much to say about our attitudes and our anxieties as it does about sexual purity. And and let me say this, just to encourage you. If you're upset by any of that, it's not just the social media, it's the television sometimes that gets very upsetting on this and many other issues. If that's the kind of thing that upsets you, shut it off. Okay? Pull the plug. Put the smartphone down. I'm going to own this myself. I actually, uh, Karen and I have imposed a curfew on each other. No social media after 9.30. Because I don't want to read these conversations that I can't do anything about that have happened maybe a day or two ago. It's meaningless, all right, because I can't be there. Uh, go, by the way, you know, don't get yourself upset about these things. Put that aside and go do something good. Spend time with your family. See a movie. Play ball with your kids. Play ball with your neighbors. I don't know. Do like our missionary friends and spend time studying God's Word with people. You aren't going to fix the world through these means, not by changing your profile icon or changing laws. In fact, my prayer has been that God will make us... uh, so busy in the harvest that he will make us so busy studying the Bible, reaching out to people, sharing the gospel, that we won't have time to just idly sit by and get ourselves angry by this media that comes in to affect us. You know, on that Friday, I didn't hear about the decision until late, late in the day. That's because I was worn out with VBS with with our group of van kids. I'd spent all day in that, and I was so worn out. But it was good tired. And I'd rather be worn out with that than arguing and making myself upset. I want to share some advice to you. This is kind of like when Paul says, uh, you know, I have this word, not the Lord, but I. Okay, well, this is I. I know that we need, uh, in saying all this, I'm not saying just sit down and be quiet. I'm saying we do need to have some discussions. And we do need to have some, some discussions about sexual morality. We need to have some discussions about other serious topics. And I have benefited this week with every single person that I've had a discussion with. It has been rewarding to me, and I hope it was good for them. I'm just not convinced that we should have those discussions in a disembodied way. If you have the opportunity to discuss with someone in real time and in real space, then do that first. Because we're embodied creatures. This is the way God made us. And this is how we were meant to fellowship and interact. Now, by the way, If your only excuse is, well, it's just more convenient this way. No, it's not. Sometimes, or it may be in one sense, but sometimes these conversations are not about convenience. They need to be about Christ. And they need to be about Christ-like love. Now, sometimes we are separated by time and space. And so emails and text messages and whatever else may be our next best option. Of course, there is the handwritten letter. Just ask Jimmy Carter. Okay, you can do that. But even then, we need to keep in mind that the best way may not be for these things to be public. Because when these become public, people who should not be involved in this or experience this will get all of the wrong messages from it. And instead of being constructive, it will be destructive. One of the ways that social media has changed us, and not for the better, this is just me, is by 
given us the idea that the word friend is a verb. Friend's not a verb. Friend is a noun. Friend is a person. And we need to keep our relationships on that level. And when we can establish peace with another person and another friend, we're building up the body of Christ, even when it's tough to do so. This is what love looks like. Christ says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out the offense just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. For where two or three gather, where they come together in my name, then I'm with them. By the way, that's always been a good idea, not just after June 26, 2015, and it will still always be a good idea. Now, as to that which is biblical, if we keep in mind, first of all, that this is personal for people, if we keep in mind that then it's personal for us, and if we keep in mind that we can separate ourselves from the destructive political uh, ways of doing things and if we can behave ourselves appropriately as friends as people who love one another in Jesus Christ then there's some things that we can say the first is this it's very clear that God has a vision for human relationships characterized by love for one another all human relationships come down to that he has a vision for human thriving in the creation and in that creation He creates the union of man and woman in a marriage covenant that fits into this vision. Now, not even every male and female relationship fits into God's vision. It's not there just because it's a male and a female. Also possible in God's vision for human thriving are those who remain single. Being married does not give a person greater access to the blessings or the kingdom of God. And being single doesn't mean that somebody is incomplete or that they're broken or that they're unloved. I know there's debates often to the, you know, that, that, oh, well, Jesus was married. But honestly, from what we see, the best that we see, he was not. He lived a life that was single. Paul the apostle himself said that he was single. Therefore, being single and serving Christ, being single, it is not An incomplete person, it fits into the vision of God for human relationships and human thriving. Being single doesn't mean that someone is somehow missing out on part of God's blessings. Not when our life together is characterized by godly love. So we must be cautious also in upholding the vision of marriage that we do not make marriage into an idol or a false god upon which we can project all of our values. The Pharisees at the times of Jesus did that. They turned marriage into something that they had, they had turned it into their own personal experience to gratify and satisfy themselves. So in Matthew 19, when these Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, tell us, teacher, when can someone get a divorce? When can they give their wife the bill of divorce? Jesus takes them back to God's vision of human thriving. He takes them back to that Genesis vision, and he says, in the beginning, he created them male and female, what God's put together. Don't let anybody tear apart. There's the vision. Everything comes out of that vision. But then they say, well, Moses said we could get a divorce. And when Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, he's calling them out. He's saying, I know what you're doing. You're thinking that if you get a divorce the Moses way, that it's all okay, when really all you're doing is you're wanting to get a new wife, you're really wanting to commit adultery, but you want to make it legal. He was talking about not the legal process there, but he was talking about the intent of those Pharisees who came to him. 
There is much brokenness in the world. God does not intend for his people to live in loneliness. The marriage relationship, though, is not the cure-all for loneliness. Christ calls us to live by the standard of love your neighbor first in our relationships with one another. That's where we begin. Marriage, sex, these are not the ultimate expressions of love. You can love and not be married. You can love and there does not have to be sex in the relationship. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's of great value. It's of great importance. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. By the way, somewhere I know there's a little note in there in the textual variants that say, 1 Corinthians 13, it's not just for weddings anymore. Okay? We need to look at that. We need to understand that it applies to church life. That's really why Paul wrote it. Love should not be equated, you know, one-one with marriage and sex. Now, love has to be there for those to have their true meaning. But they don't find their, you know, I've heard this phrase, they don't find their highest fulfillment in the marriage bed. That's idolizing romance. And that's why homosexual love gets idolized often as something romantic, and therefore, who's going to be against that? If we return to God's vision of the creation thriving and we glimpse His purpose for humanity reflecting His image, then some things, even if they seem benign, they're not going to fit into that vision. Same-sex marriage does not fit into God's vision for human thriving. And neither does adultery. And neither does divorce. And neither does abusive relationships, and neither does prostitution, neither does polygamy, bigamy, or pornography. And by the way, I recognize this in myself, and I ask us to pay attention. We can get very upset and, about what's happened after June 26 and the way social media reacts. But do we realize that we've got a pornography shop on the south side of this town? And how many times have we driven by it and not realize what a corruption that is? Why aren't we as concerned about that? I say we should pray that it go away. But we're more concerned about what flags we fly than we are about this pornography shop. And I would like to see them go away. I'd like for them to be redeemed. God's vision for human thriving shows us that God cares about the way all of us, all of us behave. Some of us should not be married regardless of sexual orientation. Some who are married, man and woman, they don't get a pass that their behavior doesn't matter anymore. We all have to strive for godly relationships and Christ-like love. But I believe it's a reasonable question to ask, where do the church leaders stand on this? Where does the West Ark Church stand? Now, I'm going to answer that, but I want you to understand too, I'm not the holy pontiff. I can't give you the official statement of this congregation. I don't know that anybody can. I mean, the, what, what matters, I mean, even our elders will tell you that they're shepherds of the flock, that they respect and serve and worship the king. And the Bible does have much to say about where disciples stand. And it's worth mentioning that disciples, first, we need to know this first. First, we stand in the power of God, 1 Corinthians 2.5. We stand in the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said it's of first importance. We stand in God's grace, Romans 5, 2. We strive to stand perfect and complete in the will of God. That's Colossians 4. We follow Christ and submit ourselves to his judgment. We strive to understand God's ways through his word, through his teaching. We strive to live out his vision for human relationships. 
as you see it from Genesis to Revelation, and that thriving in Christ, and that covenantal marriage is there, and that love for one another is there. But you have to understand that um, in those Christ-like relationships, what it means to honor God with sexual purity and sexual and proper sexual behavior. As I've already said, there's a lot of things that, don't, that aren't included in that vision. And by the way, knowing that there's so many of those things, that may make some of us feel condemned. It might, it might make some of us feel judged. Well, when that happens, that's where we go back and we stand in the gospel. Because that's where there's grace. And, and that leads us to a very important biblical discussion, which is the biblical discussion about sin and holiness. A frequent concern is the fear that sometimes we might be too easily tolerating sin. And that raises a really good question. What do we mean by sin? I'm no longer surprised that when it comes to a particular action or when it comes to a particular thing and we're trying to define, is this a sin, is this not a sin? Differences in biblical interpretation cause one person to view an action as a sin. It causes another person to say that it's not. I've been doing this long enough, and I know the history, that I know that that's happened. I'm not surprised when it happens. And by the way, on the subject of homosexuality and same-sex marriage, I'm quite familiar with other interpretations of biblical texts about morality and sexual ethics, what was the history, what was the context. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm just trying to say, I know, I know. And, and I, I'm aware of the possible meanings of the historical context. But I want to say this. Instead of focusing on the biblical definition of particular actions, it might be better and more instructive if we focus on the biblical definition of sin. Sin at its core, its, its atomic structure, what it is is it is the arrogance and the tragedy of human beings living as if they are not loved by or accountable to their creator. It's important to understand that that's the dynamic of sin because otherwise we're always going to be at a loss to say, well, now, is that a sin? Is that a sin? Is that mentioned? Is that in the code book? Is that in the book? Because labels for different types of homosexual relationships or homosexual behavior, uh, the labels are constantly being updated and changed. They're not the same as they were in the first century. But in the first century, they're not the same as they were now. There's always going to be some change to it. But if you look at the definition of sin, it's more important to understand what that means than what's meant by Greek words like malakoi and arsenikoitai and other Greek and Hebrew terms that are not useful at all to us. Our cultural labels are in a state of change, and that's part of the problem because the biblical definition of human thriving is constant. So even if we can define biblical terms accurately, we might have other terms. I, I get that. But if you understand sin and what it means, that it is this arrogance and this tragedy, that we are somehow not accountable to a creator, then we are going to miss the point. If we don't understand that God gives us to live holy, redeemed lives that glorify God, then we're not going to understand what real fulfillment is in God. We need good options here. I do know the meaning of one Greek word. It's not very disputable. I mean, you don't see a lot of articles written on this. It's the word pontus. Pontus means all. Kind of simple, kind of boring, all, and yet it means so much. 
It's used in a phrase like Romans 3.23, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's Romans 3.23. And whatever label you put on yourself, that applies to us. We have family members, neighbors, friends, some who identify as gay, lesbian, some other label. We may reach people, if we're going to do God's Word, we may reach people that they see that as their identity. The only identity, church, there's an identity problem, but for all of us, but the only identity that matters are, do you, are you clothed in Christ? Can you be identified as Christ's child? Do you have His name? And if people withdraw from people who are struggling with things, how are they ever going to come to know God's vision for their lives? I'm not saying we have to be for people who are in sin, but we may have to be with them so that they can know the gospel, so that they can know God's vision. I'll conclude here, and I want you to know that, and I know maybe this doesn't need to be said, but I think it should be. I want you to know, first of all, that none of this is being spoken with hate. None of this is being spoken with fear. Rather, I hope you know that all of this is being spoken with humility and it is being spoken with respect. And in saying that, I don't mean to sound defensive. That's not the case at all. I think it's important that we have to affirm real love in a climate that's often confused or fraught with anger and conflict. Now, there's enough truth in God's Word to offend and convict all of us, but there is also good news. Good news that God's grace is greater than sin. God's grace is greater than the offense. And if we can accept that, we can repent, we can change, we can grow. And I'll leave you with these two thoughts. If you're upset by something I've said today, well, we can certainly talk about it. And I may be wrong. Or perhaps I need to clarify myself. Some of you may have wished I didn't even preach on this. It's okay. But some of these things, I, you know, I won't always, but some of the things I've said can just simply be upsetting. We can handle it. I always have to own the way that I've said something. And if the way I've said something is upsetting or unsatisfying or has been offensive, then I'll own that. But God's word is God's word. And we are all accountable to it. And that, there's no apology and there doesn't need to be an apology for that. Because God's word is calling us to real life in God. It's calling us to repent and to change and to be the people that God intends us to be, not the self-satisfying images that we often create for ourselves or our congregations. So I invite you to that loving word of God, that loving word of grace, but also a call to holiness. And if you need prayers or encouragement, shepherds will be here to pray with you. They'll be in room 100. If it is appropriate for you to commit your life to Christ by being born again, baptized into Christ, then you can let one of our shepherds know that during this song. Let's stand and sing.